Welcome. You're listening to Gravity Healthcare Hacks with your host, Melissa Brown, Chief Operating Officer from Gravity Healthcare Consulting and self-professed healthcare nerd. Monthly, we will provide industry expertise and tips to help keep your feet firmly on the ground in the world of healthcare. Hello, everyone. We are really excited to discuss with you today a critical hot topic for 2020, how to capture isolation on the MDS. With the introduction of COVID-19 into our communities in early 2020, isolation has quickly become more widely used in an effort to control the spread of the disease and protect the residents in our care. At Gravity, we've completed some COVID-19 MDS chart audits on behalf of our clients, and what we found was that there were many inconsistencies and actually some potential areas of fraud and concern. Additionally, in reviewing the statistics for some of our clients who faced massive COVID outbreaks, we found that few of them were actually able to capture isolation on the MDS, and thus they were missing out on receiving the associated increased reimbursement. So let's take a deeper dive into how we can correctly code isolation, explain the organizational and policy considerations that you will want to be thinking of, and detail the reimbursement tied to this clinical indicator under PDPM. Isolation, as you may know, is captured on the MDS in Section O, Item O100M, Isolation for Active Infectious Disease. For both PDPM and with COVID, the rules for capturing isolation on the MDS have not changed. So let's briefly review some of the key details. A resident can have either a positive diagnosis, often identified through a COVID-19 positive test, or they can be suspected of being infected with a highly contagious disease like COVID. The RAI says they must be symptomatic and or have a positive test and are in the contagious stage to be considered for capturing isolation. So if a resident has a roommate, for example, with COVID, or they just came from the hospital and they were exposed to COVID there, unless you have a positive test result or they are symptomatic and you have all of that documented clearly in the chart, you can't capture them for isolation, even if you maintain the resident in isolation the entire time. A second key feature is that the resident must be in a place where there is no roommate. This means you can't cohort two active COVID residents or PUIs in the same room and attempt to capture isolation for either of them. If you have double rooms but you choose to do single occupancy, as several of our clients have done leaving one of the beds empty, that will suffice and probably makes the most sense to control the spread of COVID. Certainly, if you're considering becoming a COVID-only or a COVID-focused uh, sniff, you'll want to make sure you have single occupancy rooms and maintain isolation so you can capture accurate reimbursement commensurate with the increased expenses you're facing. Additionally, a resident who's captured on the MDS for isolation must require transmission-based precautions, such as airborne, droplet, or physical contact precautions. A resident kept in isolation with standard precautions only does not apply per the MDS. You also cannot capture isolation if the resident has only a history of highly contagious diseases. So, so let's say the resident has resolved COVID-19 or C. diff, then your MDS coordinators would not be able to code isolation on the MDS. It's only for active diagnoses that are directly impacting the plan of care. Finally, one of the more obvious elements for capturing isolation is that the resident must receive all services in their room. This means meals, activities, therapy, et cetera. Some clients have asked us whether a resident who's in a COVID unit and does not leave the unit can qualify, and unfortunately, isolation only applies if it was maintained 100% of the time uh, the resident uh, was in their room. 
This is because isolation with transmission-based precautions requires increased resource use for you, the provider. And thus CMS has structured PDPM to provide for these increased expenses by granting the highest nursing CMG for residents accurately coded for isolation on the MDS. One exception to this is if a facility transport a resident who meets the criteria for single room isolation to another healthcare setting to receive medically needed services, things like dialysis, blood transfusion, or chemotherapy, which the facility does not or cannot provide. In that case, the facility should follow CDC guidelines for the transport of patients with communicable diseases, and they may still code for and capture isolation since it's still being maintained uh, while the resident is in the facility for all other services. The REI reminds MDS coordinators to consider any resident in isolation for a possible SCSA or significant change in status assessment. While it won't apply to every resident, it is an important consideration, and it probably should be a part of your isolation policy. Many of our clients have been skilling long-term care residents with suspected or positive COVID-19 straight from long-term care, using the CMS waiver allowed during the public health emergency that allows residents to be skilled without a three-day qualifying hospital stay if the case is related to or impacted by COVID-19. So don't forget you have that option as long as the waiver remains active. There's a lot of details and things you need to be aware of, so that's something to research further, but that is an option that you have. In just a moment, we will be discussing some compliance considerations for isolation and what your organizational policy should be to help secure and defend the increased reimbursement you receive for accurately coding isolation under PDPM. But first, a quick word about Flagship Rehabilitation, our sponsor for today's podcast. Flagship Rehabilitation is a contract therapy partner based out of the Mid-Atlantic region, providing physical, occupational, and speech therapy services to skilled nursing, CCRCs, life plan communities, home health, and hospitals. Flagship's mission is to deliver person-centered care with innovative solutions and exceptional care models. Flagship Rehab champions clinically driven operations, drives quality outcomes, and fosters compliance monitoring and risk management using data analytics. Learn more at flagshiprehab.com today. Okay, so let's talk about how to protect the increased reimbursement your community receives from correctly coding and capturing isolation on the MDS. First, it's important to note that a resident can qualify for the highest nursing CMG or case mix group under PDPM for isolation. This highest reimbursing category, called extensive services, includes residents with vents, trachs, and or in isolation. The only restriction here is for residents whose Section GG nursing PDPM score is a 15 or 16, who do not qualify for extensive services and instead must drop to clinically complex. Residents who score a 15 or 16 for nursing under PDPM are essentially totally independent, and residents who are at this level are probably not even appropriate for skilled care anyway, unless there are other qualifying nursing or therapy clinical indicators. However, it's important to remember this is a very small subset of SNF residents, and it isn't often the case with somebody who requires isolation. So important to be aware of it, but not something that uh, is going to happen in most communities to a massive extent. One of your other concerns and caveats is that the resident must need skilled care and have a diagnosis or suspected diagnosis that requires medically necessary skilled services. 
So let's say a resident's roommate has COVID-19 and the resident's completely asymptomatic, test results haven't come back yet, then the resident can't necessarily be skilled for COVID and receive isolation reimbursement. Even if that diagnosis comes back positive, if the resident's completely asymptomatic, how can you really justify a skilled level of services were required? This comes to probably the single most important element of this podcast today, and one I know you are very familiar with, documentation. If you're documenting the skilled observations you're making of the resident, the repeated multiple times per day vital signs, and close monitoring of the resident who is a PUI or an asymptomatic COVID-19 resident, then you can probably skill the resident and capture isolation. However, somewhere around 14 days after the suspected exposure to the virus, if the resident is still asymptomatic, or if you're in a situation where the test results are still not available, then you should discontinue the skilled services, unless the resident has another skillable diagnosis or service. By 14 days, you are at the end of the likely incubation period. So without symptoms or proof of infection, there isn't really a reason to continue a skilled level of observation and monitoring. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to move them out of the COVID unit or that you won't continue to monitor them closely according to your policy and procedure. Many communities have been completing respiratory symptom assessments and vital checks every shift during COVID for all residents, skilled and long-term care, and that continues to be a good practice. But without a skillable diagnosis for, for which the resident has an active care plan and that is impacting their functional status, et cetera, there's really no longer a reason to skill the resident after about 14 days from exposure. Additionally, many of our PDPM and COVID chart audits have shown that MDS coordinators correctly did not capture M isolation on the MDS, even though isolation was actually maintained. And this is because it simply wasn't documented anywhere in the chart that isolation was maintained at all times. Minimally, it should be documented at least once per day the resident was maintained in isolation at all times, received all services in their room, and what type of transmission-based precautions were followed. Usually this is done in your nursing daily documentation. We, however, have been recommending to our clients to actually try to document it every shift because if you have one shift that makes a mistake and forgets, you still have all the other shifts confirming it. Additionally, it doesn't suffice just to document it once during the IMA or initial Medicare assessment, the five-day. Technically, isolation only has to be documented once while the resident was in your facility during the 14-day look-back period. However, many COVID-19 residents have significant physical and functional limitations, and we're seeing an average length of, say, somewhere around 30 days or so. So if you only documented isolation once, let's say during those 30 days, the MAC could easily deny the rest of the skilled stay or the higher nursing CMG if there isn't proof that isolation was maintained during the entire skilled stay. We hope that this Gravity Healthcare hack helps you know how and when to correctly code and capture isolation so you can receive increased reimbursement under the COVID-19 public health emergency and beyond. Thank you for all that you do to serve the residents in your care. And thanks for joining us today. And if you enjoyed our content, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Remember, it's not just what you know, but how you apply it that makes all the difference. See you next time.